Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now, today we take a break, as Connor said, from uh, Revelation for one week. And we're going to look firstly at this service at uh, the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter to the church. And then at half past six, with Callum's ordination, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. One of the features of the times in which uh, we live, well, there are dangers for preachers at the moment. One is that you, you kind of think, well, there's something terribly significant about this particular difficulty in the world. There have been many over the centuries. The other danger is we ignore what's going on around us. I mean, it is a global issue. It's not unimportant. And one of the lines that I find myself uh, repeating regularly, and I uh, hear it from others too. I'll just switch on the stopwatch. It's not what I hear people saying regularly. It's how hard this is, how difficult it is, how complex it all is, and it is. Struck me though, uh, preparing 1 Thessalonians, I'm not sure there's a single church that makes it into the New Testament, or if there's a single church in the first century church for whom it was not really difficult. It's really tough. 
And I wonder if this is an abnormal situation for Christians around the world, but because we have lived in such comfort and ease in church life for so many centuries, I wonder if perhaps we take this harder than we should. I don't mean the medical issues and the safety and so on and so forth. Chalmers is rigorous in its compliance with all of that. But the sort of wringing our hands, the church is just not the same. We have to be careful about that. Think of this church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17 describes its beginning. They had Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's a pretty good trio of church planters. They were there, and immediately people started being converted. It's exciting times. But within a month, and no more than a month, there was opposition, there was a revolt, and Paul and Timothy and Silas were kind of hounded out in fear of their lives. That's a pretty hostile beginning. What would that church do? Would they kind of bunker down and go silent? Well, Paul didn't know what was going on in that church for some time. He went from uh, uh, Thessalonica and he he eventually found himself in, in, in Corinth and then Athens, and he kept trying to get back to them. And uh, there's a, a lovely phrase in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 17. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart. Now, there's a phrase we might well echo. I can echo it 100% from my heart. Since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Now, as it happened, Paul didn't for a while. Maybe that's a, a helpful just caution on this. And it will take us time as a church for that to happen. But what strikes me and what moves me is his great desire to see them face to face. And uh, after a year, Paul, uh, I suspect, I know he was an apostle, but he was a man, a human being. And I don't think he would have any real confidence that that church in Thessalonica would have survived. I mean, after four weeks, reminds me as I say that of Redeemer, I think they met for about six weeks before this all came. I mean, that's pretty tough. And he sends Timothy, I think Paul's in Athens, and he sends Timothy, and Timothy comes back to Paul, and he says, and you could just see Timothy coming in, and Paul goes, well, He's waiting to hear the worst, isn't he? And Timothy says, Paul, do you know what? They're just great. They're vibrant. They're strong. In fact, the gospel is spreading out from them. After we left, they got the bit between their teeth and they, they, they preached the gospel that we brought to them and, and people are still being converted. And Paul kind of, and he makes this wonderful, wonderful comment in the middle of 
the letter, or he refers back to the common, he would have made in person to Timothy, for now we live. We're alive because you are standing fast in the Lord. And he sits down and he writes this letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians. Now, uh, the New Testament letters have a sharp and relevant context in whatever situation we find ourselves. But perhaps this letter has uh, a relevance to us. It describes a living, vibrant church community. The title I've uh, given, I think for, let me just check for this talk, is Authentic Church. You can see it on the outline. The title for the Half Past Six sermon is Authentic Ministry or Authentic Leadership authentic serving in the life of a church. This is an authentic church, but it's really important for us to remember that church was authentic and real. Not, I think, so much in spite of the hardship they faced, but maybe because of it and in it, it rendered them real. When we lose what we are familiar with and like, there's a wobble moment. But then we get our heads around what matters. And there is a strengthening and a recovery and an encouraging moment. So this letter describes the authentic church in Thessalonica. Now, the first thing Paul does, and you'll see it there in um, uh, verse 2. Just read that with me. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then later on in verse 13 that Andrew read, we also thank God constantly for this. Now, what Paul is saying, he is about to encourage the Thessalonians by identifying the marks of genuineness that are evident in their church and in their lives as Christians. But first, he gives thanks to God for what God is doing. It is, it is God who is at work in their lives. Now, giving thanks to God is not a Christian cliché or a soundbite or something we feel we have to say. Rather, it is a precise statement of fact. All that is genuine and authentic is born of that which is supernatural. Church life, the Christian life, is supernatural. It is spirit life. And if our life as a church is supernatural and spirit life, then it is to God we give thanks who gives us that spirit. The marks of genuineness testify to the supernatural power of God, whether individually or corporately as a church. We need to keep remembering this, keep saying this, you know, in good times or easier times, we might find ourselves saying, oh, this church is great, it's well-led, it's got that great leader, that great musician, whatever it is, and uh, thank, thank, we thank them, and it's good to encourage one another. But in easier times, we forget that behind it all is the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is the Spirit of the living Christ, 
It is God-given. And in harder times, when we really are up against it, it is completely beyond any minister, let me just assure you of this, or any group of elders, to lead a church out of lockdown with everybody on board at every stage. That is impossible. But it will happen because the Holy Spirit is at work. And Paul keeps on reminding himself and us, thank God for what he is doing. Notice, too, he says in verse 2, we thank God for all of you. That's a revealing comment. That's not a Christian jargon comment or cliche again. Paul is not saying we thank God for all of you, but I don't mean all of you because some of you are not worth, some of you are just dodgy, struggling, not really committed. This church is strong. It's got a big, big heart. It's got no fringe. Every church has a fringe to a degree, but in adversity, there are two things that can happen to people on the fringe of a church. People who have kind of drifted over months or years, long before lockdown or persecution comes. There are two things that can happen to people in a fringe. They disappear or they come into the heart. How do they come into the heart? The Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, seeks them, draws them, brings them back and uses us. And I can say, as the pastor of Chalmers, with many examples I could uh, illustrate, we thank God for many things. And I think I can say, largely, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Chalmers is a church where many, many people are committed to one another and to the Lord. Now, let me just uh, pause there and say this. You might feel out of it. You might feel away from the heart of things. And don't let the devil whisper in your ear that these strange times in which we are living are proving to you what you knew all of the time you're not really involved or in the heart of things. Don't let him whisper that in your ear. All of you. All of you. Paul writes, and there's the song of a pastor's heart, and I would echo that. My concern is for all of you. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances. Now, what does he give thanks to God for? Verse 3 their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they're great phrases. They're quite spiritual phrases, but what actually do they mean? Work of faith, and that sounds good. Labor of love, steadfastness of hope. So, what do they mean? Well, each describes committed service. Work, labor, steadfastness. There is a seriousness 
to genuine Christianity. A church that works hard. A church that realizes, embraces that what it does is core business. Accepting the Word of God, speaking the Word of God, declaring the gospel of God is hard. It's hard in part because of the difficulties that arise because of such commitment. What are the difficulties? Well, the transforming work of the Spirit and the Word in our lives makes it difficult for us because it's always nagging away at us, pricking our consciences. And the indifference or rejection we face when we speak the gospel of God. Work, labor, and steadfastness is an accurate description of church life. But notice the other end of the couplet. Notice the motivation or the reason we work, labor, and are steadfast. It is a work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Work, labor, and steadfastness. Now, fuse them together. It's a powerful combination. Work and labor and steadfastness might be happening in a church, but the test of its genuineness, if it is grounded in faith, love, and hope. If it is not, it will not last. The labor and work and steadfastness will give way to bitterness and anger if it is not grounded in faith and love and hope. Church life is always work, labor, and steadfastness. But church life in tough times is more work, more labor, and more steadfastness. And what will endure and what will enable us to carry on is faith, love, and hope. I mean, we're talking a lifetime. A lifetime of Christian service. A lifetime of witness. Fueled by faith, love, and hope. And of course, as we're learning in James in the mornings, Real faith, real love, and real hope always results in work, labor, and steadfastness. Let me suggest some practical examples of what work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus might look like in the life of a church. And these are real. They happen in chammers, and I could put names to them. And I think that's probably right that we use real examples, not made-up ones. So a young man who turns up early in church to set up, on a Saturday, for example, he comes gladly. He doesn't want people to know who he is. There is no reward. Why does he do it? Because he has faith, a work produced by faith. Courage of a young woman to invite her friend to a Christian to explore or guest event, a work produced by faith. People who go out once a month to care for homeless people in our city, why do they do it? Because they have faith, a work produced by faith. A couple who, at the end of an exhausting day, take time to pray for their children or to think together about how may best use their family Bible time, a work produced by faith. What about a labor of love? Love for people who are not Christians. A Christian, a Christian church family will labor, will work hard at that and keep on working 
because they know the importance to bring others to hear the good news of Jesus. You go the extra mile to do that. Some people go to the ends of the earth to do that. And then a church family love labors for one another. If our love for one another in a church family, if our Christian fellowship is genuine, it will be seen in real care, real commitment, real practical love. And then endurance inspired by hope. It's pressing on and persevering through difficulty year after year, reaching, building, training, and sending to do what we can for the cause of the gospel in this generation and for future generations. The motivation, hope in our Lord Jesus. Notice our. Paul gives thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. There's the litmus test of a church. Work labor, steadfastness. That sounds like a Scottish church. Flip the coins. Faith, love, and hope. Work, labor, graft, faith, love, hope. It's a rich, rich combination. And that's what this church family is like. Let's be encouraged. Next, verses 4 to 6. Powerful gospel that changes people. Let's read verses 4 to 6 again. For we know brothers loved by God, or brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit." Now, Paul is referring here back to the events in Acts chapter 17 about how the church in Thessalonica began. The gospel that was preached in the church in Thessalonica was not simply words, but words attended with power. Not simply a message, but a powerful message the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was felt, experienced, in that people's lives were changed. Paul refers to full conviction or deep conviction. The preacher, the hearer, under deep conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, their lives changed. Now, that's a test of genuineness, of authenticity. That in the preaching and Bible teaching in a church, there is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. People's lives are changed. 
they come under conviction. As the Holy Spirit applies that word in their lives. Now we need to be careful here. It is absolutely right that we look for and that we pray for the powerful conviction of the Holy Spirit in the life of Chalmers. It is good and laudable to have a desire to want this and to pray for this. But we need to be careful. The work of the Holy Spirit in convicting power should not be gauged primarily or even to a significant extent by what we feel, for example, in a sermon or in a small group Bible study. So at this moment, if you are sitting here or watching wherever you are in the world watching, you may feel sleepy. You may have been asleep. You may feel drowsy. You may feel happy. You may feel sad. You may feel distracted. You may feel focused. You may feel warm. You may feel cold. You may feel grumpy because of the song we had before the sermon. You may feel happy because it was your favorite song. You may feel resentful or grumpy or glad. But how you feel in these ways does not equate to whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work in convicting power. So many of the things that we took for granted that perhaps can have engaged in helpful and sometimes unhelpful ways with our emotions or preferences and all that stuff has gone. How do we gauge or sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Here are two ways of thinking. Firstly, that words that come with the conviction of the Holy Spirit are words where the content of what is said is the gospel of God in the Word of God. In other words, it is what is said that matters most. It is from where it is said that matters. Paul refers in verse 5 to our gospel. It came to you not only in word but in power. Our gospel is the gospel the Lord Jesus gave the apostles to proclaim. It is that gospel that comes not simply with words, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ and Him crucified. The urgent call to all humanity to turn to Jesus for their salvation. It is that and that gospel alone and that content alone that is attended by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. 
So as a church, we must pay close attention to the content of what we preach and teach. If our desire is that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is at work in our church's life, it can only happen if we speak this gospel and this truth. And it is not, I think, insignificant or irrelevant that the one thing we have been left with that has not changed at all in lockdown or through coronavirus is the speaking of the gospel of God. Unhindered, unfettered. Maybe God means for churches to recover that as its primacy. Now, is that the gospel that is preached in Chalmers? Is that the gospel Christ and Him crucified that frames our Bible studies? I think so. I pray so. It is so. But we must not presume so without ever asking the question. It's a bit like saying, do we give God thanks for what He is doing? Yes, but let's keep asking us if we are keeping asking that. Is the gospel that is proclaimed in Chalmers Christ and Him crucified? Is it the Apostles' gospel? Yes, but let's keep asking, is it? Is it still? The second way to gauge if the Holy Spirit is at work with conviction. So, number one is attend to the content of what is spoken. Number two, is there evidence of a genuine work of the Holy Spirit because people's lives are being changed, often over a period of time. Now, do you see the difference between this comment? Here's one comment. That was a powerful preaching series, a Bible study series. Well, that was a powerful sermon. Compared with, that was a powerful preaching series, a Bible study series, because over that time, these months, when we studied Romans, or Mark, or James, the Word of God changed me. I'm different now. Doers, not just hearers. What is the change? There it is in the second half of verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The lives of the Christians in Thessalonica became increasingly patterned on the life of the apostles and the Lord Jesus. What are the marks of a transformed life? Well, for one thing, they embraced this gospel, they spoke it and lived in light of it, and living in light of it meant affliction and joy. You received the word in much affliction, with joy in the Holy Spirit. How come week by week, virtually, 
what we hear in one service is then repeated in another. We don't even notice these connections midweek when we prepare. What was Roger speaking about this morning in James? Affliction and joy. That's real Christianity. And when the Bible begins to describe how we are currently feeling some of the things we love and take for granted taken from us, maybe God is saying to us, Luke, I'm showing you, I'm teaching you what is real and what is authentic and what matters. And what the real conviction of the Holy Spirit means. Clear gospel. Changed lives. Now, we're just on half an hour. And I am going to just touch on numbers three and four, and I'm going to leave number five. The third mark of authenticity is that the church in Thessalonica was outward-looking and an example to others. Let's read verses seven to nine. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come." Now, if a church seeks a reputation, that is dangerous. But churches have a reputation, whether they seek it or not. What is it that this church in Thessalonica had a reputation for? The Lord's message rang out from you. That's evangelism. Second, their embracing of the apostles' teaching, your faith in God has become known everywhere. We do not need to say anything about you, for they report what kind of reception you gave us. They received the apostles and their teaching, embraced their gospel and their pattern of life, and were ardent in proclaiming the gospel. Their reputation was for evangelism. Now, I think in terms of thanksgiving to God for what He is doing, evidence of the works of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. Work, labor, steadfastness, faith, love, and hope. A clear gospel and changed lives. I think Chalmers is, well, it's authentic. And here I think it's right that we hear this reputation for evangelism 
as a little more of a challenge to us, certainly to me. Chalmers is a church that is outward looking in many ways. We train gospel workers and send them. We send people across the world. But many of us have still not learned to ring our neighbor's doorbell with the intention of speaking to them of Jesus. And it's good that we note that and acknowledge that and seek to ask the Holy Spirit to help us change. You know, when, when we look at something perhaps where we lack, we immediately, immediately think it must therefore be my responsibility to put it right, my efforts. But it's, if it does come right, then we're going to be saying in a year, thank you, God, for these opportunities that came. But there needs to be a willingness. And finally, verses 9b to 10, conversions. Paul's focus on verse 9, conversions, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. People converted. Such zeal for evangelism is a consequence of living in light of the return of Jesus, verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our studies in Revelation will teach us, in light of the events currently in the world, not when Jesus will return, but that he will. He must. And that will be the great day of wrath. Hence the great urgency and need for us to hold out that gospel truth and evangelism. So there is a little... Uh, site under the roof of an authentic church. Chalmers is not unlike the church in Thessalonica in uh, many respects. In some respects, perhaps, there are challenging things for us to learn. One of my favorite TV shows is the Antiques Roadshow. I tried it out on the maps and staff this week, and they all humoured me by saying it was their favourite tea. The best bit on the programme is the bit when they tell you the value. That's the best bit. The second best bit is when they tell you whether it's genuine or fake. Letters like this tell us what is genuine. And what is fake. And there is so much in Chalmers that is genuine. Let me leave you though with this comment. Let's be careful not to all too easily lapse into the rhetoric. Because we have face masks on. Because we're sitting a long way apart. Because this is going to go on for a long time, probably in some way, shape or form. Because this, that, or the other. Let's not lapse too easily into the rhetoric of wringing our hands and saying, well, this is terribly, terribly difficult. Just read any of the New Testament letters. 
And see how in difficulty these churches were galvanized in a dependence and a fervency for God and his gospel. God has a great deal to work with in Chalmers that is good, a great deal. So rest assured in that, don't panic. But let's also dust ourselves down and get on with the job that he has given us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these letters, letters spawn of real situations, not easy often. And we pray that we would learn from this church in Thessalonica to dust ourselves down and to carry on with the work, not so much to look at the difficulties as the opportunities. Thank you for the fact that this exercise to test our genuineness has proved that Chalmers Church is the real thing. Yes, with ways to go. But the work of the Spirit is going on. The gospel is the gospel of the Lord Jesus given to his apostles. It is changing people. There is work and labor and steadfastness. There is faith and love and hope. There is an outward-looking vision. We pray, Lord, that evangelism would be added to that in all of our lives and that we would embrace the circumstances we find ourselves in and find ways to go on proclaiming the gospel before the Lord Jesus returns and the great day of wrath dawns on mankind. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.